Good evening. My name's Tim. It's great to be with you and to welcome you, particularly if you're a visitor and a friend of uh, the Christian unions. One of the things I love about the AFES and the Christian unions is the partnership between the students uh, and the supporters and friends who pray to, and uh, make the ministry happen. And I just happen to sort of sit in the middle of that as a staff worker. And I, I, I'm just thrilled to be part of that partnership. So thank you for coming and joining us. We love to have you with us. I pray that you get to meet some of the students and rejoice with them in the grace of God. Um, if you've got your books for NYC, we're on page 11. If you're a visitor, I hope you've got an outline of the talk. You'll find that helpful to have that there and uh, your Bible's open at Matthew 18. Many of us know the feeling of being in debt. If you're a student, you know it, don't you? Every semester, the hex debt goes up and up and up. Or if your parents are paying for it, your debt to your parents goes up and up and up. Every semester, more and more. If you fail, it still goes up. But it's not just students. Uh, a report recently came out that said one in six Australians have a credit card debt so big they will probably never be able to pay it off. That's sort of frightening, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's partly that the iniquitous 20% um, interest rates the banks charge just make that inevitable. If you've got a debt of $10,000 on your credit card, you haven't got much money, what happens? Well, you can't pay it all off, and so your debt just keeps going up and up and up. Remember, a friend of mine uh, was sent a credit card in the mail. He didn't ask for it. His bank just posted it to him. And it said you could go and spend uh, money on the credit card and eventually you'd have to pay it back. But you can also get cash advances. So uh, he got his first statement, told him how much he had to pay back. On the day it was due to be paid, he went along to the bank, went to the ATM, got a cash advance on his credit card, walked into the bank and made his payment on his credit card. And I saw it and I thought, that is clever. Get the bank to pay your debt to the bank. But what he didn't know was the bank was cleverer because you start paying interest on cash advances as soon as you take it out. He just was digging himself into a bigger and bigger hole. Debt is a very frightening thing to have because if you're in debt with money, you know you're at the mercy of others. They can call it. They can control your life. They can make life very difficult for you. And it's interesting that we use the same language of debt about our relationships, our friendships. Somebody does something for us and we say, I owe you. Somebody else does something and we say, oh, well, I'm in your debt. Now, if it's money they've lent us, it's sort of understandable, but if they've helped us, we still use that money, that language of money. I, I wronged you and so I owe you an apology. And I presume it's because when we've wronged someone, it does actually feel quite similar to being in debt to them. We, we want to somehow pay it back if we can. If we can't pay it back, we feel awkward with the person. We're at their mercy. Sometimes we even avoid them because things haven't been put right. We're in debt to them. We live with the weight and anxiety. And Jesus uses the language of debt to speak our, about our relationship, not just with each other, but with God. In the, the famous Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. It's the money word. It's the word of being in debt with money, but it, he uses it of what we owe God because of our evil, because of our sin. It's also used of each other then. We're in debt to each other. 
because sin does put us in debt to God in a very real way, a different way to money, but it's like that, isn't it? Like if, if, if I wrong you, if I do something terrible to you, I walk up to you and stamp on your toe and punch you in the, the nose, I've done something against you and I'm in your debt. Somehow that needs to be put right. But God loves you if I've done that to you and so he's offended by it as well. Something is out of place. Something is out of order with God. I owe him. And in Matthew 8, chapter 18, right in the middle of it, Peter asks a question. He says to Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, in Peter's mind, seven is extravagant. And it is, isn't it? Imagine that, I don't know, you, a friend promises to be there for you at a time you really need them. And you go to the place they agreed to be there and, and meet you and, and stand with you, and they don't turn up. You're miffed, aren't you? you? You were depending on them. You were relying on them, and they didn't come. And afterwards you find out they simply forgot. And they say, please forgive me. And I guess you might. And then a week later they say again, they'll promise they'll be there for you, and you turn up at the place and they don't turn up. And you ask them what happened, they said, oh, well, I was writing an essay, sorry. Could you forgive them the second time? And a week later, you agree to meet again, and you say to them, now, remember the first two times you didn't come. You're going to come this time. They say, yeah, yeah, I'm really going to come this time. And again, they don't turn up. Like, how are you feeling at that point? Could you do that seven times? Peter's thinking, no. You wouldn't go that far, would you? At what point would you say, nah, this is not working. It's just not happening Something different's got to happen. And Jesus' answer is, not seven times, not four times, but 77 times. I mean, 77 is, if seven is extravagant, 77 is out of the world, isn't it? You can't imagine having to do it that many times. It's really like saying, there's no limit. Jesus, you've got to be kidding. I, I can't do that. It's impossible to even expect it, isn't it? And it's in that context Jesus tells this story about a king and his debtor. A servant who owes him 10,000 talents is the original language, 10,000 bags of gold. Now, 10,000 doesn't feel that big, does it? But a talent is about 35 kilograms. That's about eight house bricks of gold. 10,000 talents is 350 tonnes of gold. That's not quite as much as in Fort Knox. It has more than that, but it's a substantial amount. If you convert it to dollars, you're talking $20 billion in our currency. Now, who has a debt of $20 billion? That's a big credit card debt, isn't it? How do you get into that much debt? How would one, the servant of a king, have a debt that much? Jesus is, is blowing it out of all proportion. That is more than the GDP of a country like Zimbabwe. That is a huge amount, $20 billion. That's how much he owes the king. Like, it's meant to blow your mind and think this is beyond anything that is real. And he can't pay. That's not hard. That's not surprising, is it? But when he's, he has to front up to the king, the master orders that he and his wife and his children be, be sold to repay the debt. Now, he won't get much of his $20 billion, but at least he'll get his pound of flesh. 
At this, verse 26, the servant falls on his knees before him and says, be patient with me, I'll pay back everything. Who's he kidding? He's not thinking about pay it back. He's just playing for time, isn't he? He knows that everything, well, he's, he's got nothing to play with at all. No cards to play. He just asks for more time. And verse 27 then is the surprise. The king's master took pity on him. He had compassion on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. $20 billion of debt moved by compassion. That's going to leave a hole in his budget. That's for sure. He does much more than the servant asked for. That is incredible mercy, isn't it? Unimaginable mercy. And then the story goes on. This servant goes out. He's free to go out. He's not sold as a slave. He's not rotting in prison. He's a free man. And he founds one of his own servants who owes him 100 silver coins, 100 denarii, about $10,000. Significant money, but compared to the 20 billion, a drop in the ocean. And what does he do? Well, he grabs him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. The servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. The same words he said to the king. Exactly the same words. As he said them, he must have heard himself, the echo of what he's already said to the king. But what does he do? He refuses. He said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. How would you react to that situation? Because when the other servants see it, they are outraged. They can't believe what he's done. When the king hears about it, he says, you wicked servant. And in anger, he dismisses him. Why? Are you outraged? Because what he's done is perfectly legal. What he's done, in a sense, is very just. This guy's got into debt for $10,000. He's got $10,000 off him. He's used it to buy a boat or something like that. And surely it's right that he pays the debt back. And what would happen to our financial systems if, if all of us went around just not paying debts back or demanding that they're not paid back? Like, what would happen to our banks? They'd collapse faster than they're already collapsing. Our whole financial system depends on people paying back, on justice being done. Why are they outraged at his action? Well, the king explains it in verse 32 and 33. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. I had mercy on you. Shouldn't then you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Do you see the logic? If we've experienced mercy and got more than we asked for, more than we could imagine, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? Another part of the New Testament says that mercy triumphs over judgment. It triumphs over mere justice. It moves us from a tit-to-tat justice, protecting my rights, just doing what I have to do, into a very new space. See, uh, try and imagine the relief of that first servant when his $20 billion debt was cancelled. When he, it started to dawn on him that he'd never have to pay it back. He'd never end up in prison because of that. He wouldn't lose his family. He wouldn't lose his home. He wouldn't lose his car. All the anxiety and fear that's bottled up in being in debt like that, evaporating. I mean, he would have walked out standing straight, wouldn't he? 
It, the best hope he had was for a delay of the inevitable. And instead he got the unexpected, your debt is cancelled. He got this compassion from the king to, to whom he owed $20 billion. His whole life and destiny has been reversed. I mean, he would have worked out feeling euphoric, wouldn't he? The liberty would have just burst out of his skin. And Jesus says, well, if that's what you want, if that's what you've enjoyed, then to then turn around and impose justice with no mercy on somebody else on a $10,000 debt, that is outrageous. That's wicked. In the last week, I presume you've been moved like I have of the story of the soccer team caught in the cave in Thailand. It's been just fabulous to see the international effort, a a cooperation, the skill that's gone into getting them out. When you think somebody lost in a cave, that should be pretty easy. They get in, they should be able to get out. But actually, when they started to explain to us the, the predicament they were in, it was clear this was a very difficult situation. They, all likelihood, they all would have lost their lives except for that incredible effort that included one of the divers losing their life. They've made it to hospital. I take it they're, they're home now. Imagine after that ordeal. They've been in hospital. Everything's checked out. They're rescued. And one of them's walking home back, back, to, back to their, um, their house. And they see on the other side of a little creek a, a boy shivering, fearful because he's got on the wrong side of the creek and he's saying, please help me, please please help me. Now, it would be outrageous if they didn't help, wouldn't it? (laughs) They've just been rescued out of the cave. Surely that's changed them. And that does happen all the time, doesn't it? People who've been rescued from predicaments, they start foundations to help people in similar situations. It, It just happens. And if they don't have similar compassion... For people who've been in the same place they've been, are standing in the same shoes they were standing in, there is something drastically wrong. And Jesus says, if you want justice, you'll get justice. But if you want mercy, then you've got to live with mercy. You you must extend it to others. It's got to be mercy all the way. This servant wanted a foot in both camps. And the master said, no, you can't do that. And Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The point is pretty obvious, isn't it? We have been forgiven by God, our creator, God, the father. If you're not a Christian, do you see what being a Christian is about? That's what it is. It's God forgiving your debt purely out of compassion and mercy to you. It's unbelievable that a king would do that, that to that extent. But that is what God does to us. And Jesus is saying it, it must lead to forgiving others. If we won't forgive others, if we want to get our revenge and justice, then that's what we'll get from God. Now, the parable makes very clear the order of things. We don't earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. He forgives us. It's his mercy and compassion that kickstarts everything. And as a response to that, it's outrageous if we don't forgive others. Notice the magnitude of it, the 20 billion versus 10,000. It's just such a huge difference, isn't it? 
And if I'm realistic about myself and I'm realistic about the things that people do to offend me, they are like that, aren't they? What God has forgiven me far outstrips. It's not in the same ballpark as what people would ever do, could ever do to me. Even the most heinous things compared to the forgiveness of God. He forgives with mercy and compassion. He costs the death of his son. The master knew the cost to his budget of the $20 million. The father knows the cost to himself in the giving of his son. Secondly, do you notice, and if you've lived for more than 10 years or so, you will know that forgiving is not easy. Forgiving is very difficult. If somebody has actually hurt you deeply, forgiving them is not just something you do like that. You you can't carry it out. Because if you're hurt deeply, it, it is part of you. Sometimes we talk glibly as if forgiveness is a very easy thing, but it never is. If you haven't experienced that yet, if nobody has hurt you deeply enough that you're finding it difficult to forgive, just live another two years or so and it will happen. Thirdly, I want you to notice that the story shows us very clearly that Christianity is not what you might call a debtor's ethic. Some people think of being a Christian like this. God forgives me at great cost, therefore I owe God. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life, whether I like it or not, trying to pay off God. I'm in such deep debt, what I must do is behave myself, is to do good, is to somehow be worthy of God so that I gradually pay back to God the debt I owe him. Now, is that how this servant is? When the king forgives him $20 billion, does he give him a bill for $20 billion at the same time? No, he walks out a free man with no debt whatsoever. Now, that's not what Christianity is like. He's not a debtor's ethic. God genuinely forgives us. It's freedom. It's not obligation. But in being forgiven, we join a new kingdom, a new reality, a new community that's based on mercy and grace. Grace is the founding dynamic. And how you get in creates a very different dynamic, a very different community once you're in. You get into uni by having a sufficient ATAR score. It's something you do, you work for. And that's true of almost everything you have. If you get a job, it's because of who you are, your qualifications. Sometimes it's true too. When you get married, it's because you come up to someone's expectations. But this kingdom you get into, a very different way you get into by being forgiven. And that's a very different dynamic. It's so foreign to our experience. It's hard to imagine. And what Jesus does in Matthew 18 is he helps us to imagine it by talking about the sort of behaviour that happens within his kingdom, within his community. And so I want to go back over the first half of the chapter now and explore the way that being forgiven by God shapes the way we live with each other in particular. So back to chapter 18, verse 1. The disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? It's a question most of us would like to ask but aren't game to ask, isn't it? But we're almost always asking it in our minds, in our hearts. 
who's the smartest here? Who's the fastest here? Who's the coolest here? And, and where do I fit with that? Where am I in the pecking order of things? And how do I gain status in this group? Because every group, every little culture, subculture, has its own currency of status. Maybe it's the clothes you wear. Maybe it's your ATAR score. Maybe it's, it, it, it's your sporting prowess. Maybe it's the jokes you tell. Like every group has that sort of status uh, um, uh, 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 paraphernalia. And, of course, the way we get in is by having whatever it is, enough of it to be part of that group, and we want to know who's the greatest and where we fit. But what if the way of entry is forgiveness and not merit? Who's the greatest then? Well, Jesus does something to turn their world upside down. He calls a child into the middle and puts them there and turns the child around and makes them all look at the child. And he says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A child in that culture had no status, no significance. Children were not only to be seen and not heard, they were not to be seen or heard. And Jesus is saying, unless you become like one of them, unless your status is one of those, you don't even get in because the way in is by being forgiven. And you're not forgiven because of merit, but because of need. You may be a high achiever, you might be the smartest, coolest person around, but this kingdom is for beggars. And so you must be like a child, asking for mercy, wonderfully receiving mercy. So who's the greatest? Verse 2, verse 3, um, uh, 4, sorry. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The lowest is the greatest. Because in this kingdom, there's no room for status. There's no place for stratification. Rosemary and I moved to a little country town ages ago. And when you go to a country town, um, one of the things that is almost inevitable is you've got to work out a way of meeting people in the town. And after I'd been there a few weeks, I decided a way to meet people was to join the tennis club which is just starting a new season, because it seemed like everybody played tennis. So I turned up on the first day of the, the meeting of the tennis club, Sunday afternoon tennis, and the first thing they did, they said, well, which pennant team will you join? Do you want to be in the pennant ones, pennant twos, two Bs, three As, three Bs, three Cs? Where do you fit? And I said, I haven't got a clue. And they said, oh, well, we'll get you out playing a bit and we'll see where to rank you. So I got out and played a bit. They came to me and said, Tim, we have a social uh, tennis as well, if you like it. <laughs> which suited me just fine. <laughs> but I knew where I was in the ranking because social tennis, there was no qualification, okay? We, we joked among ourselves that it was the no-hopers tennis group. And it was fabulous because there was, there was absolute freedom. You didn't have to win any games whatsoever. You could just enjoy yourself. Well, that's what the kingdom of Jesus is like. It's the no-hopers club. But there's more to it. Verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. See, we can trip people up by being unwelcoming. Most of us have had the experience, I think, of turning up to a new place, maybe a new church, a new Christian union, even to MYC, and how people respond is quite critical, isn't it, if they welcome us or ignore us. 
Because the question we enter almost every room with is, am I good enough for this crowd? And what's the answer if we're people who've received the mercy of God? The answer has to be, it doesn't matter. All are welcome in this place. This is the No Hopers Club. And that welcome must be in both words and deeds. And so we can force people away. We can trip people up by not being welcome. But we can do it more positively as well, unfortunately, by causing them to stumble, to trip up in their loyalty to Jesus, in their trust in Jesus. Jesus warns us that the things that will trip us up are always coming to us from outside, from the world, the criticism, the ostracism, but it shouldn't come from brothers or sisters. But it can come because we're cold and unwelcoming. Have you ever done it? Just stayed with your little group. You don't care about the newcomer, those who, the person feeling vulnerable and unsure, because I'm just doing my own thing and enjoying it so much. Thank you very much. Or we can do it in active ways of actually being part of that criticism of them, the ostracism of them. And Jesus says it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and get thrown into the lake. Sounds like a mafia hit, doesn't it? And that's what it's meant to sound like. I'd hate that to happen to me or to you. Well, verse 10, he says, See that you don't despise one of these little ones by causing them to stubble or other ways. I tell you, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go off and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. We can despise them by treating them with contempt, giving them the cold shoulder because they're not good enough for us because of their ethnicity, ethnicity or their clothes or their lack of knowledge or the school they went to or the uni they've graduated from. And Jesus is saying, how could you? That's outrageous, isn't it? You know, it's natural, it's what we all do, it's legal probably, but it's outrageous if God has forgiven you despite your ethnicity and the clothes you didn't wear and the knowledge you didn't have and the school you did go to and the way you've behaved. It's outrageous given how God has welcomed you. And then he gives the positive side because God is really like one of those shepherds of the ancient world, not like our shepherds, who's got a flock of 100 sheep and if one of them wanders off, what will he do? He'll leave the 99 and go and find that one insignificant sheep. Because he's not willing that one of his little ones, one of his insignificant, stupid little sheep should get lost. In the eyes of the world, they don't matter. But to the creator of the universe, every single one of them matters to him. I think it's probably likening God in our context much more to a sheep dog than a shepherd. Have you ever seen a sheepdog at work? They've got a flock of sheep in front of them and if one of the sheep should start to wander off, what do they do? They, they nip around and chase them back in and if they keep wandering, they give them a little nip on the heel and force them back into the flock again. They're great. They, they keep the mob together. They look after every last sheep. And there's a ministry of sheepdogging that God is calling us to here, of noticing when somebody's wandering away, perceiving that their hearts are wandering, maybe the worldliness is alluring them or they're discouraged by what's happening around them and and doing something about it remember last year a friend of mine came to me and said Tim I, 
have you seen, and he mentioned somebody's name uh, recently. And I said, actually, come to think of it, I, I haven't seen him for a while. And my friend said, yeah, I haven't seen him either. I, I was really worried because he hasn't been at church. He, he was supposed to be part of a, a, a Bible study group, but he hasn't come along. Uh, I, I don't know what's happening. I said, maybe we should do something about it. And he said, yeah, I, I've called him two or three times in the last two weeks just to try and find out. I, I haven't really worked out what's happening yet, but I've been praying for him every day. I thought, that's it. That's what I want to be like, sheepdogging. Because if I was wandering off, that's what I'd, I'd want you to do for me. And if this is a kingdom based on mercy and compassion, that's how we enter, then surely that's what we show to one another as well. Some wander away, but others trip themselves up. And that's really what verses 15 following is about. If your brother or sister sins, probably sins against you, as most translations have, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they sin, see, here they're not just drifting, they're jumping into sin. I don't think he's talking about the normal everyday failures of the struggle of the flesh and the spirit and, and finding it difficult to be, to be faithful. This is stepping away from Jesus, especially by sinning against me. Now notice it's their fault. They should put it right. But Jesus says, you do something. You go and shepherd them, sheep dog them. Go and first just on their own, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they won't listen, take one or two others along so that by every matter uh, it may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. There's a, there's a process. The aim is not to shame them but to gain them, to win them back as a brother or sister back to their loyalty and joy in the Lord Jesus. And the method is to keep it as small as possible, only escalate it if it's really necessary, only take it public to the whole church if you've been unsuccessful at the other stages of it. And only if they won't listen to the church do you use the smallest amount of coercion. Treat them as you would a non-Christian to try and convince them of the seriousness of their sin. And notice this is not just pastors People paid to do this sort of ministry. Jesus is saying that to all of us, if we follow Jesus, these are our family. Go and tell them of their sin. I find that very difficult to do. It seems really risky to go and say to somebody, listen, I, I've seen what you've done and, and it was wrong. Because I risk them blowing it up and saying, get out, stop judging me. What a, what a terrible person you are. I risk losing them. But it's a much bigger risk if I don't do it. Of course, if they listen to me, I've won them back to Jesus. I've secured their salvation. It, it takes guts. It takes love. It takes the grace of God. And it's in this context that Peter asks his question about forgiving. And Jesus tells the very pointed story of the king and the $20 billion dollars and the $10,000. And I'm sad to say that unwillingness to forgive decimates families. Unwillingness to forgive decimates friendships. Unwillingness to forgive decimates churches and youth groups and Christian union groups. And I see it all the time. 
You know, one person just even sometimes overlooks somebody else, ignores them. The other person takes offence and they never talk to each other again. Someone gossips about someone else and the gossip goes around and people believe it or don't believe it. They start to take sides and soon it's family versus family, mine versus yours and the bitterness festers. And long after anybody even remembers what the grievance is about, there are groups of people who aren't talking to other groups of people. No, we never talk to them. We never go to their home. No, we we might sit in the same building, but everything is ruptured. If you're fighting to be treated fairly, if you're fighting for recognition, forgiveness is impossible. But if you're a recipient of mercy, of forgiveness, if you've been lavished with the grace of God, It's outrageous not to forgive, isn't it? That video of uh, the Muslim lady who's come to Christ was very moving, wasn't it? I noticed she said something along the lines of, when people hurt me before, I used to curse them, but now I forgive them. Now, take it, nobody had to tell her to do that. Nobody had to sit down and say, you're supposed to forgive people now that you're a Christian. She just knew from how she'd been treated by Jesus that that was the way to live. That's what it means to live as a follower of the Lord Jesus, as a recipient of the grace of God. See, grace is not just something for me. It creates a culture of grace among us. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. He's not just saving individuals. He is doing that, gathering the lost, the wandering sheep, but he saves us into a community, into a congregation, into a church. The same grace that saves individuals creates a culture for his church, for his kingdom. Grace-shaped communities in which that forgiveness, that grace, that compassion and mercy is the bedrock of the culture. I want you to imagine for a minute a situation where you know that in mercy you don't need to hide your failings. There's no more fear of rejection from others. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That would be incredibly liberating. Because you could be completely transparent. Apologies would flow freely one way and and, and back, and they'd be heartfelt uh, apologies and there'd be genuine forgiveness. And the forgiveness would be a joy for both, both the offender and the, the offended. Not easy, but a joy when they're reconciled together. And the tears flow of of being in a community because the enormity of being forgiven by God has flowed out into the way we relate to one another. A couple of caveats on this. Sometimes people think that forgive equals forget. That's a myth. Please don't believe it. Forgive doesn't equal forget. Some people think that way and therefore they see someone who's offended them and, 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 and the feelings come back and they remember what's happened and they think, I mustn't have forgiven them. No, that's treating forgiveness as something too easy. It's not like that. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. Forgiveness is when you remember deciding not to take revenge. That's what forgiveness is. You see them and and you remember what they did to you and the the scars start to hurt. And you feel sometimes as if it goes straight to your heart. And forgiveness means as you feel that, forgiving them. You'll feel it again every time you see them. 
don't take revenge. Lord, with your help, help me not to hate them, but to work on them. Secondly, forgiveness in the scriptures is not self-therapy. You hear it all over the place these days. I heard it on the radio just last week. Why should you forgive? Well, do it for your own sake. You'll feel better if you forgive others. If you don't forgive, the bitterness will just eat you up over time. God does not forgive us so he feels better about himself. Now, he forgives us because we need it, desperately need it. And that is true of our forgiveness for one another as well. Forgiveness is for love's sake, out of compassion, for their good, not for my therapy. And you notice that living as the people of God, living under grace is pretty messy. If you wanted a nice, clear, ordered life where everything is neat and tidy, reintroduce the carrots and the sticks. They can get you an ordered life because if somebody steps out of line, what do you do? You just hit them a bit hard until they step back into line and everything is nice and tidy and engineers like me like it like that. But under grace, well, people are stuffing up all the time. And we're doing things with that. We're not ignoring it. We're not just saying, unless you, uh, you measure up, you're out of here. No, their lives and our relationships with them aren't clean. They're not predictable. They're not easy. They're always messy. We'll spend lots of our energy on emotionally charged conversations. And that's part and parcel of receiving and extending the grace of God. And living it is essential. Verse 35 is a very severe warning, isn't it? This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. What sort of kingdom do you want to live in? A kingdom of justice or a kingdom of mercy? A kingdom where everyone gets what they deserve, then you will get what you deserve. Or a kingdom of mercy where God gives us grace upon grace, forgiveness upon forgiveness, compassion after compassion. And therefore, we extend that to others as well. Yes, it's difficult. It's not easy. Which one do you want? Justice or mercy? Fairness or grace? It's got to be one or the other. And whichever one you choose, it's got to be life. Not just a hobby, life, the mercy of God and extending the mercy of God. Not just transactions, but who you are from your heart. Will you pray with me? Now, Father, your mercy, your grace, your compassion, your forgiveness blows our minds and bursts our hearts. Father, we pray that your grace will have its effect, that we become gracious, we become compassionate, we become merciful like you have been to us. Please protect us from that desire for justice. Instead, we pray that our experience of your grace will change us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.